ACAST. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Starfleet Leadership Academy, a Star Trek podcast told through the lens of leadership development. And now, here's your host, Jeff Aiken. Welcome, and thank you for checking out the latest episode. I'm really excited to dive into one of the more controversial Star Trek series. Love it or hate it, we have a lot to learn as we dive into Enterprise Broken Bow. Starts off with a little flash of Jeff Aiken's childhood playing with Star Wars figures. Got the uh, Rebel fighter there along with the X. Oh, well, okay, maybe, maybe not quite the same. We got the uh, we got a little kid uh, spending some time with his dad and kind of kind of shaming shaming dad a little bit. When's it going to be ready to fly? Let the paint dry first. And and what's pretty shocking in the world of Star Trek, throwing some shade at the Vulcans. I mean. We've been trained now for for decades to think that Starfleet humans, the Vulcans, like totally simpatico. Everybody loves everybody, and it's fantastic. But well, apparently, uh, not so much in uh, in these olden days. Fast forward about thirty years to what will be the present day for this series, uh, starting in the year twenty one fifty one, some hundred and fourteen years before the days of Captain Kirk. We come into a cornfield with a modern looking Klingon, ridges and all, running away from a bad case of eczema. Eczema dude can uh, turn into slime or something like that. Tuna fish. No bones. And uh, slides down, slips under a door into a silo that the Klingon completely blows to hell. Poor farmer comes out, confronts the $100,000 winner of Battle of the Tough Guys, I mean, I mean the Klingon, and blasts him with his Tatooine-style shotgun. Cut to the most emotion-inducing theme song in all of Star Trek. It's been a long road. We meet Captain Jonathan Archer and Charles Tucker in a scene from Star Trek The Motion Picture. They do a really good job explaining what the Enterprise NX-01 is all about. Warp 4.5 next Thursday. Neptune and back in six months. I really love the sense of awe and wonder that Tucker conveys as he talks about the ship. They make a really big deal as they're flying around about Tucker bumping into the Enterprise and scratching the paint. From here, we get a really cool view of what Earth was like and the precursor to the Starfleet we know, as Archer gets called to Starfleet Medical by Admiral Forrest. Zeus is on a hospital, I mean, the Klingon is on a hospital bed as we see very open hostility between humans and Vulcans. You'll be apprised of all pertinent information. And just who gets to decide what's pertinent information? Main Vulcan is identified as Saval, and we learn that Vulcans and Klingons apparently have a pretty long history. Saval recommends delaying the, the, the launch of the Enterprise, which is nothing new to Archer. He's honestly just pretty surprised they didn't come up with a better story. The Vulcans talk about how dangerous the Klingons are and that humans absolutely do not need to make an enemy out of them. A very bright blue-eyed doctor explains that uh, the Klingon is actually still alive 
And uh, that lets the Vulcans then head into some expository on Klingon culture, uh, that it's more honorable to die in battle than to live injured. We get the first real uh, explanation of being being a really warlike and honor-bound culture. There's a female Vulcan in here that calls uh, humans volatile, specifically Archer. And Archer goes ahead and uh, really demonstrates his self-control here. You have no idea how much I'm restraining myself from knocking you on your ass. First real leadership moment for Captain Archer here as he steps up. He says he can have his crew ready in three days, even though he hasn't even identified all of his crew yet. Bravado and confidence in spades. This can be this can be a pretty risky leadership tactic, over-promising on your team's abilities. But if you're confident in them, and you know how to motivate and properly push them, it can be amazingly successful, and it can show them what they're truly capable of. But if not, well... You stand to lose a ton of credibility, both with your team and your superiors or even your customers. Well, Admiral Forrest loves the idea of the Enterprise suiting up in three days and, and, and taking his Klingon back home. Uh, he stands up to Saval and he approves the, uh, approves the request from Captain Archer. At this point, Archer, and, and thank goodness for this, calls out what's been sort of a glaring issue in this entire, uh, in this entire scene. He says, When your logic doesn't work, you raise your voice. The Vulcans in this scene have been really apparently and obviously emotional in their responses to the humans from Starfleet. Maybe more to come on that later in the series, one could hope. Well, we head back to the absolutely gorgeous dry dock scene and on to the Enterprise, where we meet Travis Mayweather and Malcolm Reed, the helmsman and main armory officer. They talk about the uh, the transporter and how it isn't really safe yet for human transport. This is a really cool, uh, really cool approach. I think the transporter is one of the things that first differentiated Star Trek from other sci-fi in the late '60s or up to the late '60s. And so they really open this up in in a way that makes a lot of sense. They're using the transporter for cargo, not for living creatures, not for humans. And uh, I, I don't know. I just think that's a pretty cool way of showing the technological advancements to come that they'll have to deal with in this series. After this, we head down to what appears to be Earth. Really beautiful, uh, really beautiful set. Clearly shot on location. And we meet Hoshi Sato. She's teaching some sort of language class. Archer, who's in his civvies, shows up and tries to convince her to leave the school and report to Enterprise early. She outright refuses. Says she'll be available in three weeks, not three days. What Archer does here. It's amazing. He knows Hoshi. They've got a pre-existing relationship. He knows what motivates her. So he dangles a chocolate-covered, gold-infused carrot in front of her, and he plays. What do you know about these Klingons? Not much. An empire of warriors with 80 polyguttural dialects constructed on an adaptive syntax. Turn it up. Well, Hoshi, Hoshi's all in. Back on the Enterprise, we learn there will be a Vulcan science officer on board. Tucker and Archer get to meet her. It's T'Pol. She's the Vulcan that we met earlier down on Earth. Tucker introduces himself as Trip, as his full name is Charles Tucker III, thus Trip. And Archer is the captain. Well, he lays down the rules. He lets T'Pol know in no uncertain terms that they see her being on the ship as an intrusion by the Vulcans. He makes it crystal clear. What's said in this room and out on that bridge is privileged information. I don't want every word I say being picked apart the next day by the Vulcan High Command. We also get to meet Archer's dog, Porthos. 
Admiral Forrest holds a press conference on Earth to announce the first interstellar voyage for Starfleet. We learn here that Archer's dad, Henry Archer, who we met in that opening sequence, worked with Zephram Cochran to develop and enhance the Warp 5 engine. To send them off, we see James Cromwell reprise his role as Cochran, and he lays down the foundation for the iconic opening phrases to Star Trek. And we'll be able to explore those strange new worlds and seek out new life and new civilizations. This engine will let us go boldly where no man has gone before. And they're off. We see a massive space structure of a very unique design. We head inside and see one of the eczema guys talking to what appears to be kind of kind of a shadow. The visuals are phased and pretty cool looking, and even the voices seem to echo in a very phased manner. Eczema guy, a, a Suliban, Suliban, updates the shadow guy that Clang, the Klingon, is in the possession of the humans. Archer touches base with his medical officer, Phlox, the guy that was working on Clang back on Earth. Phlox has a lot of pets and living creatures that he's unpacking. Sounds like he uses them for medicinal purposes? Well, we'll see. Archer's trying to get a feel for if and when Clang will be conscious. Phlox isn't a lot of help and explains that he agreed to this mission so he can study humans under pressure. We, ju- we, just, uh, we just won't mention the smile, the smile effect that they, they use on him here ever, ever again. Archer, Tripp, and T'Pol all meet to have dinner together. We begin a deeper dive into Vulcan culture. Apparently they don't touch food with their hands. They're vegetarian. Two salads. Which prompts a discussion on how enlightened humans are as compared to Vulcans. Tripp says they've wiped out hunger, disease, and war in just two generations. I really like these scenes where they kind of fill in the blanks between our time and, uh, and theirs. It's kind of cool. Flox calls Archer, who gets Hoshi, and lets him know that the Klingon is awake. Hoshi's really struggling to communicate with him, but she keeps at it. She gets really emotional and eventually completely overwhelmed. I am sorry, Captain. I am doing the best I can. Suddenly, main power goes out. Reed thinks he saw something off the starboard bow. And we get some night vision footage of some Suliban creeping through the halls, and then we briefly see one in sickbay. Seems they can cloak themselves as well. Nice, very slow pacing builds the tension, along with a really cool soundtrack. When we finally see one of them climbing on the ceiling, it goes all horror show into a brief firefight. The lights come back and clang? Well, clang is gone. In this scene, the tension, the tension is really high. Archer's panicked. He's shortening up his delivery. Where do we stand on weapons? What are you waiting for? See if you can translate what he said. Right away. Why don't you help Trip with that analysis? We're not going to San Francisco, so make do with what we've got here. Ultimately, he gets very micromanagey. He really takes the decision-making out of the hands of his people. Tell a lot about a leader when they're, when they're in a crisis situation like this. Helping out with the uh, translation, T'Pol makes the case that the, uh, well, the mission is over. Uh, it's a failure. Clang is gone, and they need to return to Earth. Archer tells her to follow him into his ready room. This is kind of cool, right? He uh, gets her... In private, to have a very, a very, a very curt conversation. In here, he completely lays into her. He goes, he goes pretty racist or speciesist. So take your Vulcan cynicism and bury it along with your repressed emotions. She keeps her cool, encourages him to reach out to Starfleet or, or at least to update them. He refuses and dismisses her. It's super short, to the point, <laughs> and ironically, pretty inhumane. Under pressure, he he really looks like he's falling apart and blasting through his crew in the process. In the meantime, Phlox has got a Suliban on the table. 
Apparently, uh, the one they shot landed very conveniently for the doctor to do some work. He points out through an autopsy, there's been extensive, sophisticated genetic engineering done on this guy. Better. Stronger. Faster. Some really great close-ups on the makeup here, and it, it looks incredible. Really good job. Trip and Paul. They're digging into the sensor readings where she shares that Vulcan children play with toys that are more sophisticated. Hmm. They're doing a lot of work effectively to show the rift between humans and Vulcans. This is not the Star Trek I grew up with. Archer, Archer's all over the ship. He interrupts Trip and Paul, who continue their argument. He's not, he's not fully micromanaging right now, but he's absolutely... Well, yeah, he is absolutely micromanaging his crew, like in every way. He's completely taken away decision-making, autonomy, and agency from, from, from everybody. Hoshi comes in with a translation that, through to Paul, ends up leading the Enterprise to Rigel 10. Back on the Suluan ship, they're interrogating Clang. They're, they're trying to get something or some info from him, but he ends up, uh, he doesn't have a lot, but he sends them also to Rigel 10. They get to Rigel 10, and Archer pulls together his away team. Trip, Mayweather, Reed, and T'Pol. He and T'Pol brief the crew, and she heavily emphasizes they shouldn't act too human, or else they'll be found out. You have a tendency to be gregarious. I suggest you try to restrain that tendency. Dr. Flox isn't concerned with the food and water, but he does caution against intimate contact. Very, uh, really patronizing attitude in every way. But, I mean, maybe it's a little bit founded. This is one of the first times that humans are going to be on the planet, uh, or one of the first times on a, on a planet with a diversity um, that Rigel 10 has got. Archer explains they're trying to find the courier that Clang was here to meet with. They take the shuttle down, because transporters aren't for people, and the crew, man, the crew are in some totally cool and inconspicuous, yeah, emphasis on inconspicuous, jackets, and they're marveling at the world they see. Total slum with all kinds of different species. Reed and Mayweather find these incredible looking blue and pink women dancing and eating butterflies. <laughs> They've got some odd looking guy leading them to Clang apparently. But he's also trying to, well, basically, he's trying to pimp out the, the butterfly girls. Trip sees a kid and its mom. The mom looks like she's suffocating the kid and he can't help but get involved. He learns a valuable lesson about forcing human values onto other species. He's self-righteous despite the fact she was doing what she was supposed to have been doing in order to raise her kid. As they leave, we can see a Suliban watching them. Archer and Hoshi see some Klingons. Their communicators are being blocked, so, so Archer pulls out his gun. Some hooded Suliban jump down and subdue both of them. We next see them leading Archer and Hoshi into a cell where, well, they've already got to Paul and Trip. They're taking Archer to meet Saren, the one that Clang, the one that Clang was looking for. You're the courier who caused so much trouble for my legion. They meet up, and Archer immediately threatens her. You better be careful. I'm a lot bigger than you are. Saren explains that some of her people have accepted evolution in exchange for, for something significant. She also explains that Clang was carrying a message back to the Klingon High Council from her. She was, uh, she was hoping to prove to the Council and help them understand that the Suliban had been staging attacks uh, in, within, the Klingon, uh, within the Klingon Empire to make it look like one of the Klingon houses was attacking the others. And then she drops it. Here is Enterprise for you in a nutshell. Fighting a temporal cold war. 
the Suleiman Cabal are taking orders from the distant future. An attack from Cabal members breaks up the discussion. Saren releases the crew and they head towards the roof to get to the shuttle. As they leave the area, Saren gets taken out and the crew, crew are on their own. They get on the roof and this set, this set is epic. Snow is pouring down multiple levels. Really reminds me of, uh, of a multiplayer map on Mass Effect 3. Hashtag Firebase White. Reed and Mayweather are in the shuttle trying to reach the crew, but the communicators are still broken up. This sets up an incredible standoff between the crew and the Cabal. Archer, Archer plays the hero. He grabs two guns, covers everyone as they get to the shuttle, and ends up taking one in the leg. He gets dragged into the shuttle by his crew. T'Pol takes control, starts barking orders at Mayweather. She lets Enterprise know Archer's been hurt and that she's taking command of the ship. I'm taking command of Enterprise. Back on Enterprise, we're reminded that this show aired in 2001, and uh, apparently TV audiences expected something more out of their Star Trek. little thing I call the uh, Seven of Nine Syndrome. To uh, to decontaminate after the mission, to Paul and Trip, uh, they have to rub gel. They have to rub gel on their nearly naked bodies under a blacklight for a very long time with very early '90s Cinemax camera camera angles. Well, in the midst of all this, at least there's a little exposition going on. Trip advocates for Archer being able to complete this mission the way that he would want to. In sick bay, Flox is using a leech of some sort. Uh, so something like that to heal Archer's leg. He's been out for six hours. T'Pol comes in, explains she's taken command and that they're tracking the Suleban vessel. She's following Archer's plan. Archer records his first star log with a calendar date. Kind of cool. April 16th, 2151. In it, he ponders T'Pol's change of heart and praises her skill. On the bridge, they seem to have chased the vessel to a dead end. They've lost them. Well, any ground that Archer may have gained with T'Pol is quickly lost as he basically bullies her into digging deeper into the scanner reading. We've lost them. Yes. Move us in closer. Anything? You finished helping us? And they find that there were actually 14 tiny ships that went into the planet's atmosphere. He gives very specific orders to Mayweather on how to get there. We see the Suleban back in the phased room with the Shadow Man, who says the humans and Vulcans shouldn't be involved yet. He tells the Suleban he needs to stop them as they have Klingon, the Klingon's message. Enterprise ends up finding the Suleban base. The base finds them too, and they, uh, well, they start taking fire. They head up into the atmosphere to avoid the attacks. T'Pol finds that the base is actually made up of hundreds of small ships. They're all held together uh, magnetically, it appears. They can't get a fix on Clang, and so they plan a B&E. How do we break in and find this guy? I'm talking about a B&E breaking and entering. Enterprise continues to take fire. Archer waits till the last second before deploying the grappling hook to steal one of the ships. The grappling hook. How cool is that? We're used to tractor beams and all kinds of laser stuff, and this is 2151. Just, I mean, just 100 some odd years into the future from now. They're still using grappling hooks. Then we get a scene with Mayweather, Trip, and Archer all together. And I love this scene. How often do Star Trek people get into a ship and just magically know how to pilot it? It's all the time. This scene is Mayweather trying to teach Trip how to pilot it. It's totally cool. Well, the Enterprise, Enterprise is hiding up in the phosphorus layer of the atmosphere, but the Suleban are sweeping the area looking for them. In time, per to Paul, they'll eventually find them. Really fantastic acting as Trip and Archer fly the Suleban ship towards the base. Trip looks like a guy that really has no idea what he's doing. Really, really well done. As they're trying to find the docking port, Trip bumps into the base. Nice callback to his piloting when we first saw the Enterprise. On the base, 
they quickly find Clang, right next to where they docked. They head back uh, towards the small ship, but this is where they find some opposition. Archer sends Trip and Clang along while he plants charges on the base core, causing it to demagnetize and for all the ships to start to break off. This looks amazing. Incredibly done. All the little sh- ships just, just floating away and, and breaking apart. Trip and Clang make it back to Enterprise, but Archer's still on the Suliban base. He stumbles into the weird phased room and immediately notices that things aren't quite right. On Enterprise, Trip and T'Pol are arguing about Archer's order to go back and get him. She believes he said that to get Trip to get Clang to the Enterprise successfully, and she's refusing to proceed with the rescue. The situation must be analyzed logically. I don't remember the captain analyzing anything when he went back for you on that roof. Some shots of the crew eyeballing each other and not buying into her reasoning. Eventually, eventually she agrees with Trip. Back in the phased room, the Sulabans, named Selleck, attacks him. He shoots Archer with a phaser, with a phase pistol. But because of the phased time, Archer's able to dodge the shot. Archer escapes the room and we get a cool strobe light fist fight between the two of them. Selleck confirms the genetic enhancements were payment for their help in this temporal cold war. As they fight, Archer disappears as Trip beams him aboard. Beams him aboard! Mr. Tucker! We're going to plan B. Now! Rich, we've got him. Sorry, Captain. We had no other choice. We went through a whole thing, a whole thing earlier in the episode about how how we couldn't transport people yet. And here in the first episode, boom, he beams him aboard. They use the transporter on a person. Well, at least it worked. Everybody's on board, so we cut to the Klingon High Council. Clang, Archer, Hoshi, and T'Pol enter. This this is the first official meeting of humans in the Klingon government. Hoshi provides translation services as Clang delivers his message. The, the message was encoded in his bloodstream. Pretty advanced for Klingons. Klingons decode it, and they acknowledge Archer's involvement. I'll take that as a thank you. Back up on the Enterprise in Archer's quarters, he updates Trip and T'Pol on Starfleet's new orders. They're to continue their exploration. Dr. Phlox has agreed to stick around, and Archer confides in T'Pol after Trip leaves. He says that he needs to change if they are to be successful. He has to leave behind preconceptions, holding grudges. He praises T'Pol's assistance and asks her to request that she remain on board. She agrees. He asks her to make the request because he doesn't want to appear weak in front of the Vulcans. While clearly prejudiced against the Vulcans, he's politically astute enough to build his team without weakening his position as captain or, or leader. Archer heads onto the bridge. He gives a rousing speech to the crew. And there we go. Prepare to break orbit and lay in a course. Take us to warp four. Enterprise is underway. I tell you, Star Trek just gets better each time it launches another pilot. While I found TNG's encounter at Farpoint barely watchable, this is another cinematic achievement in the vein of Voyager's Caretaker. The sets, music, and all the visuals look fantastic. Well, well, most of the music. There's there's some, say the jury's a little less, a little more than split on uh, on that one. It's been a long road. Gonna take some time even for me to warm up to that theme song again. Pacing on this was a little disjointed. They had a ton to cram into this episode, but they also gave it some room to breathe. I think that's because, well, honestly, the story was was, was a little bit weak. They took 90 minutes to fly a Klingon home. Personally, I like the animosity they build between humans and Vulcans. We've always seen these two groups as being united and having a common cause. 
But this sets up an almost parent-child relationship as humanity comes into its own. As we rebel against our parents, so do the humans rebel against the Vulcans. All in all, not a bad start to the series. A very different feel with the seeds for some other stories and relationships being planted. Command codes verified. At this point... We really have only one leader in Archer. We get some tiny glimpses of T'Pol's style, but they tend to fall in line with what we know of Vulcans, with two very significant exceptions. You see, T'Pol can be persuaded by her team. While she's confident in her choices and the direction she is set, she also realizes she's not infallible. When Archer's hurt and she is in command, she could have very easily followed orders blindly and returned to Earth. But instead, she listened to Trip and everyone else. She was able to understand and assume their vision. Ultimately, she saw the logic in it. She followed their lead, and they tracked down the Suliban. And finally, despite accomplishing the mission by bringing Clang on board, she sensed the desires and needs of the crew and agreed to rescue Archer. They didn't dive into her decision-making in the episode, but I'm going to make some assumptions here. It's not uncommon to have to deliver and support actions and information that your teams may not like. Often, leaders are called upon to carry messages that are, that are not their own. An effective leader, though, can recognize those decisions and actions that can cause more harm, more immediate harm, and act otherwise. In this case, given the looks of Reed and Mayweather specifically, she could have faced an all-out mutiny. Again, weighing her options, she decided to proceed with the rescue. The flip side to this is when things don't go well. When going against the message you're tasked with passing on fails significantly, you, as the leader, need to be prepared to take the heat. In this case, if the ship were destroyed or something happened with Clang, it'd be to Paul that would bear the responsibility. As her choice was a success, though, the team shares in the credit. Now, Archer. Right now, the worst thing Archer has going for him is that he's played by Scott Bakula. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. He has such charisma and confidence on the set, it causes you to overlook his egregious flaws as a leader. He fails to follow orders. He argues with his superiors, the Vulcans in this case. He doesn't communicate, and he micromanages. He tries to play the hero. Man, the list goes on and on. Weigh that against his positives. He knows his crew. He knows how to push them. He's aware of the politics surrounding issues, and he isn't always afraid to ask for help when he needs it. So let's dive into those positives a little bit. Early in the episode, he dramatically overpromises on his crew's ability to perform this task. He, he doesn't even have a medical officer on board at this point. Understanding how to motivate the team, though, pays off, and he allows them to, in the end, over-deliver. His persuasion of Hoshi Sato to come aboard early is masterful. At the end of the episode, when he's gotten his orders to continue their exploration, he knows they will face challenges they aren't up to facing. Having learned the asset T'Pol can be, he unashamedly asks her to stay and help. And he does so in a way that doesn't reinforce the stereotypes the Vulcans hold against humans. But if I asked you to stay, it might look like I wasn't ready to do this on my own. And the negatives. Well... They're substantial. The minute things go off the rails, he becomes an absolute tyrant. In crisis situations, people are looking for confidence, for assurance they'll get through everything. Archer does the exact opposite. He lays right into Hoshi and T'Pol, basically bullying them into performance. With Clang having been abducted, it is super obvious things aren't going well, and Archer reinforces that by totally falling apart. As a subordinate, I would be nervous enough. I tried to clear my head by sticking my head in the refrigerator. But I couldn't. Rush! But his leadership approach would send me into total panic. He doesn't trust his people to do what they can do. 
which is ludicrous given what we saw earlier in the episode. He had so much confidence in them. He knew just how to motivate him that he convinced Starfleet and the Vulcans to let him take the mission in the first place. Then he starts throwing his weight around, yelling at people. Uncool, Archer. Uncool. Given all that, in the end, he acknowledges some of his shortcomings. If I'm going to pull this off, there are a few things I need to leave behind. Things like preconceptions, holding grudges. He inspires the crew, and they're excited for what lies ahead. Given what we've seen, I don't know that I would share their optimism, but it'll be a long road getting from there to... Okay, 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 enough of that, enough of that. Next time, here on the Starfleet Leadership Academy, we start off with what is ultimately my favorite Star Trek series, Deep Space Nine. In the meantime, I want to know what you think. I want your thoughts. I want your feedback. What did I miss? What did I say that you completely disagree with? You can catch me on all the social media. I'm at Jeff T. Aiken, J-E-F-F-T-A-K-I-N, and all the social medias. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And until then, ex astris scientia. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again with a big hole. Touchdown! On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.